This is the Annex, an academic sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. Today, we discuss Amazon H2Q and New York City. Our discussants include Sharon Zukin from the City University of New York, Brooklyn College, and Miriam Greenberg from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, February 27, 2019. So over the past few weeks, New York has been on a roller coaster related to Amazon's plans to develop a second headquarters here. And uh, the event opened up a lot of discussion about uh, the role of tech in development and uh, what cities should be expecting of uh, the businesses that set up shop locally. And uh, those, uh, those discussions culminated in Amazon's withdrawal from its plans to open up in New York, which came as a shock to a lot of the city. And I I thought, you know, what better way to process this than to bring on two of our disciplines leading urban sociologists. First, we'll start with Sharon Zukin, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center in the City University of New York. Sharon wrote the seminal Loft Living. That's a seminal work in urban sociology. And uh, you have a new book, uh, uh, in the works, Sharon? Yes, indeed. I have a book on New York's tech economy, which will be published next year in 2020. Wonderful. And Miriam Greenberg is a professor of sociology from the University of California, Santa Cruz. And uh, she wrote the uh, seminal work on city branding, Branding New York, How a City in Crisis Was Sold to the wor- World with the Rutledge. And uh also, Crisis Cities, Disaster and Redevelopment in New York and New Orleans with Oxford University Press. And uh, Miriam, you have a new edited volume uh, out with Cornell? That's right. Yes, it's called This City is the Factory, New Solidarities and Spatial Strategies in an Urban Age, uh, co-edited with Penny Lewis. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you both uh, for joining us uh, for this roundtable. I thought we'd uh, start things off maybe by just giving... Uh, those of us who haven't been following this story, uh, you know, a primer on this. Uh, what is H2Q? Uh, what what did Amazon want to do and what was it looking for? What, why were cities so anxious to uh, be part of these HQ2 plans? Who wants to start off? Uh, well, I, I can start uh, with this. Uh, in the fall of uh, 2017, Amazon announced a competition for cities, towns, and localities of every stripe throughout North America. The company was going to create a second headquarters. Uh, presumably, it would be co-equal with the company's first headquarters in Seattle. Uh, but there would be, most crucially, about 25,000 jobs that would be cr- needed uh, in whatever city uh, was fortunate enough to get this headquarters. And uh, a kind of Olympics competition of, uh, of uh, city governments then took place where every local government tried their utmost to uh, throw the javelin farthest and uh, you know snowboard the fastest to give Amazon the very most accurate picture of what the city's economy and living conditions and transportation and communications network were all about 
and most crucially, what local government would do to tempt Amazon to come into their surroundings. Um, yeah, I think that Sharon did a really great job of summarizing that. Um, I, I think it might have been 50,000 jobs, and then they divided it up between the two cities in the end. But um, Right, I can never remember, yeah. yes. But otherwise, yeah, I think that um, that's right. Whether we call it the Olympics or the Hunger Games, <laughs> it's maybe <laughs> a debatable question. <laughs> what, what, what were cities doing to uh, induce Amazon to come? What were they offering? Well, first, you have to understand that this is the normal situation in the United States and Europe. Uh, at least since the 1970s, this kind of, uh, maybe even back to the 1950s, this kind of jockeying for the favor of companies has gone on. Uh, you know, we, we like to think that in the early days of, of industrial capitalism, companies just located uh, where there was a, uh, a, a, a river uh, where water for steam power could be water could be used to generate steam power. But you know, at least since the, the 1960s, uh, companies have been able to play a, a game of geographical dominoes and uh, get local governments to ante up all kinds of benefits. And uh, this competition uh, resulted in the, the beggaring, in the, in the uh, impoverishment of many cities that, that did everything they could to lure or to keep factories. Uh, for decades, this has been going on. Amazon did everybody a favor by drawing back the curtain and showing that this process is uh, pervasive. So this isn't a new thing. This is just, it was just highly publicized and was one of the ones to so forcefully enter our collective consciousness. Like, Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, one reason was the enormous publicity that Amazon was able to generate simply because it's such a big and uh, highly valued, that is in the financial sense, highly valued and expanding company. Um, Walmart did something uh, like this from the 1980s on where Walmart would tell a local government that they wanted to open up and then they would tell the local government in the next county that they wanted to open up and they would try to get these local governments to build highway exits for them or to give them some kind of, of uh, tax benefits. So uh, and in return for a certain number of jobs that the company never went so far as to promise, but uh, suggested that they would create. Um, yeah, I think that that's totally spot on. I think, um, you know, the it's been around. Um, sometimes it was referred to as smokestack chasing. Currently, it's often referred to as skyscraper chasing because it's going after, you know, headquarters and so forth. But this kind of interurban competition for the location of companies and with them promises of economic development of jobs has been going on for decades. I think that in the 70s and 80s, um, the process, you could say, intensified and became more generalized across all kinds of different cities alongside of federal retrenchment in support of cities, um, in support of things like Sharon's talking about in terms of infrastructure. Uh, such that, you know, so there was a, a process of kind of a simultaneous retrenchment of the 
federal government from support of cities, whether it was infrastructure, housing, um, education, and all kinds of other things that cities had to cover uh, fiscally. And in addition, deindustrialization and the loss of the tax base from uh, from industry. And so there became this intensification, there arose an intensification of competition between cities and, you know, this kind of attempt to position and market yourself for the location of, of headquarters, um, as well as for other forms of investment, tourism, um, new sources of revenue, the location of a new middle class, the creative class, and so forth, in an effort to recoup some of that lost revenue and maintain basic budgets for cities. Miriam is exactly right. And let me add that the geographical scale of both deindustrialization and competition for new jobs was a global scale because of uh, increasingly global investments. So that you had cities, say, in France and Belgium that were competing for a, uh, a steel plant that could have well been built in either place. You had American companies that were investing in uh, uh, production capacity in Asia, in Latin America. Uh, so, th- you know, there was not just a uh, a structural pressure and an institutional pressure to find new sources of job creation. But there was a global scale to all of this that really made the competition intense. So what it sounds like this type of stuff was typical. Was there anything particularly notable or remarkable about the uh, Amazon search? Like, uh, was there any sort of new information that you got or any any aspect of this search that uh, changed your impressions either about, you know, this these dog and pony shows or, you know, the, the role of tech or headquarter placement, any of that? Well, there, there was a, the tech overlay that was new, and so that the, uh, the, the romance and the fantasy of uh, uh, high-tech growth was spread by the Amazon competition. And then again, the, the openness of the situation, which could be described as either uh, in, incredible uh, uh, brass affrontery or uh, just... Uh, an, an acknowledgement that uh, big business was super powerful. Hmm. So the you know the very openness was um, the very openness was of, of soliciting bids from local governments was new. This was you know again th- th- these competitive processes had been played out pretty much behind a curtain so that most people were unaware of them. But I'll tell you something interesting: the building of the new postgraduate engineering school in New York, Cornell Tech, Mm. took place after a similar international competition that New York City ran uh, in 2010 and and 2011. It, it, you know, it it wasn't exactly the the same as a for-profit company running a competition between local governments. But in the case of uh, in the case of the postgraduate engineering school that has 
wound up as Cornell Tech in New York City, uh, the New York City government uh, announced a competition for universities that would agree to set up a, uh, a, a specialized training program in business and computer engineering that would uh, that would build the, uh, the, the the entrepreneurial part of the tech workforce in New York City. Uh, the winning bid would get a hundred million dollars in uh, various kinds of um, expenditures by New York City and a lot of infrastructure help. So it, it wasn't exactly the same kind of competition, but it was a big and open competition among universities to open in New, uh, a, a school in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, Sharon mentioned earlier the Olympics and clearly the competition that cities around the world undergo um, for the Olympics is something that's very public. And I think the, these kinds of competitions as have served to kind of normalize this practice hmm. such that it strikes everyday, you know, New Yorkers often or, or urban citizens like this is the way economic development happens that, you know, this this is hmm. kind of there is no alternative to this approach. Um, that's one thing maybe we can talk a bit about more later. But I think um, in addition, I think cities perhaps after the fact, you know, light or cities and states like in the case of Wisconsin, with Foxconn and so forth, make a big deal about having won these contracts, even while, even you know, and, and touting the promises that the corporations are making in terms of jobs and other and other forms of development, even while the process leading up to that moment has been behind closed doors. So um, it's not as though uh, the pop, you know, the public isn't familiar with this kind of a process. I do think. Um, I agree with Sharon that that Amazon, in a sense, did a, did a service in just sort of exposing, you know, the degree to which um, c- you know cities have to play this game on such a scale, um, and I think the kind of the zero sum nature of it, the idea that you know it's it's winner take all kind of a situation for cities, and this this kind of scramble and the desperation really that many cities are in to attract jobs and development at this moment was exposed in a big way. To continue with what Miriam was just saying, it's it's funny that the uh, the desire to have um, uh, political leaders cr- uh, create jobs is a perverse triumph of Keynesianism. Maybe one of the one of the unquestioned uh, uh, results of, of, of Keynesianism these days, where we expect government somehow to create jobs, yet it's the corporations that governments kowtow to for the jobs. And, and does I get the sense, does the scheme pay off? Uh, does it work for, I mean, New York is a unique case. Uh, does the scheme in general work? We don't have a counterexample yet. 
I, I think with uh, with Amazon's withdrawal from New York's from from the the, uh, the the recent situation in New York City, we do have a test case where we can see uh, in an admittedly atypical city whether economic development can uh, can be generated or can be sustained without giving these kinds of subsidies. We like to think that the tech economy in New York has emerged without subsidies, and much is made of the fact that Google is now in the process of doubling its workforce and uh, the number of office buildings that it occupies without government subsidies. Uh, Facebook, um, Infor, uh, IBM Watson, all of the uh, tech companies that are active in New York City, um, they, they, most of them have not got subsidies. Amazon, actually, which has about 5,000 employees in New York in, in different uh, kinds of commerce, uh, as well as in marketing and advertising, they have received already uh, city subsidies to create jobs, though not on the scale of the recent subsidies that the state uh, contributed to. So we, we really have to take a, a closer look to see whether the tech economy has been created with subsidies or without subsidies and what kinds of subsidies those have been. What I think many people would not object to is the fact that New York City does subsidize a lot of tech development, uh, not only through Cornell Tech, but through a number of incubators and accelerators that uh, New York City uh, helps to support financially in partnership with different private organizations and venture capitalists. Um, and maybe the, the, the feeling is that these subsidies go to homegrown and small-scale uh, startups. They don't go to a tech giant. So I think this was one particularly galling factor about the subsidies, that it was a tech titan that was going to get a, uh, a really gigantic payout. Yeah, I I would agree with that uh, in terms of the the sense of you know the the injustice as well as the unnecessary nature of these subsidies you know this idea that you know who was who was really benefiting from locating in New York which has this incredible infrastructure uh, you know needs help with its infrastructure but certainly already has existing infrastructure and knowledge base and uh, workforce and you know incredibly um, you know educated populace and so forth. Uh, so Amazon is coming to a city that already has this great, um, you know, ecosystem of, of tech industries and so forth. And Amazon is going to benefit enormously from locating there and clearly would chose to do so. And as many people are arguing, would have chosen to do so without the subsidies, but it is in such a powerful position that it can exact these kinds of subsidies. Um, and I think in terms of your earlier question about uh, how effective subsidies are in general, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that shows uh, a pretty abysmal record in terms of job production associated with subsidies. Mm -hmm. One of the organizations that I became connected to actually when I was doing the project on crisis cities 
because it had to do with um, issues of redevelopment and efforts to invest in order to produce jobs um, at that moment after 9-11, was Good Jobs New York, which is connected to Good Jobs First, a national organization that actually has a subsidy tracker and really is, is done an enormous service, I think, for us in, in tracking the success rate or lack thereof of subsidies. And I would encourage folks to check that out and has produced a lot of docu- you know, a lot of a lot of reports on this issue. But again, as a result of the the kind of lack of transparency often associated with these deals, um, which is one of the, the the focus, the foci of good jobs first and um, and other kind of good government groups that try to uncover these deals. Um, as a result of the lack of transparency, we often don't even know what was being promised in the first place, uh, what the kind of um, ability of these companies to to get out of deals is as well. And so there's often a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of risk on the on the city side, but not a lot of risk on the company side when they take these subsidies. Did did you take it as meaningful that they chose New York and DC? I remember the first reactions of journalists out in the Midwest was, uh, you know, bemoaning the fact that Amazon chose a place where taxes are high and uh, cost of living is high. And despite many of the financial disadvantages, they they still came here. Like I'm sure Kansas City or Minneapolis would have written Amazon a blank check uh, for those 50,000 jobs. Did you treat that as a, sort of a data point about the relative power of cities, the fact that Amazon ultimately chose New York and D.C.? As Miriam said before, uh, New York is, in fact, uh, North America's largest city. There is a uh, weight of the city that pulls companies in. Uh, there is a highly educated workforce and an, and an enlarging tech workforce here, although arguably that workforce is not big enough to fill all the tech jobs that mm. are in, coming down the pike. That's true. Yes. And so the question of where the people would be coming from to fill the jobs is a good one. Yeah. But I mean, if you couldn't fill them in New York, how could you fill them in Kansas City? How could you fill them in? Well, yes, but but that's an interesting point because we we just don't know how many of the Amazon jobs or how many tech jobs in general are filled by people who move to New York to take those jobs, whether they are already Amazon employees, or they come here from other parts of the U.S. or other regions of the world mm-hmm. to fill these jobs. That's It's a question. I mean, there was a question. Maybe it wasn't the biggest question, but it was a question asked during the past uh, couple of months. How many of Amazon's uh, well-paying tech jobs would be filled by what we call native New Yorkers. And that just means people who generally are educated in the city's universities or the city's high schools and live in the city already. Mm. Right. And that was something that um, Mario Amazon Cuomo, <laughs> as he <laughs> right. dubbed himself, um, was not willing to answer. I, I mean, actually, he's, it was Andrew Amazon Cuomo. Right, right. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Oh, that's such a funny mistake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Amazon Cuomo was not, um, perhaps not so dissimilar to his father in this regard, but was not uh, willing, or it was had not within the, the negotiations with Amazon made that a stipulation, you know, so there's no, so when people were posing that question, 
um, you know, there was a, a kind of uh, an interview with him on the Brian Lehrer show that I was reading about where, you know, he starts out sort of saying, you know, we're going to be attracting all of these workers to New York. And then at the end, he says, well, they, you know, they may likely, it could be me, it could be you, Brian, you know, we could get these jobs. Um, but it was clearly not something that was stipulated in the negotiations. Mm. Um, and so, and that was an issue for for a lot of folks. But I think that, um, that yeah, I mean, the that you often see with these competitions that a, a small subset of cities end up winning over and again, mm-hmm. um, particularly when they're on this kind of a scale. Um, and it has to do, as Sharon was saying, with the desire of the of the CEO. Uh, it has to do often with uh, with the upper management um, and even middle management. Where would they want to live? Where is the quality of life considered to be the best and so forth? And there it becomes this kind of uh, snowball effect, you know, as more companies locate in places and as they play a role in reshaping the, you know, the built environment and the, and the um, you know, the quality of life of a, of a city and the culture of a city, it attracts uh, other companies to, to come. And this is, you know, something that in urban sociology um, folks have been looking at for quite a while in terms of, you know, uh, the notion that we live in this global age in which people don't need to be kind of co-located and don't need to have face-to-face interactions and don't need to be place-based any longer because of technology and transportation and so forth is true to a degree, but clearly people want to be in a very active, vibrant hub, mm-hmm. um, one that also happens to be hip and cool in all kinds of ways. And so for, for their workforce, um, insofar as they're at the upper level of the workforce, and have and have some choice in the matter, and so so yeah. So I think that New York has been one of those winners um, since it kind of rebranded itself after the after the seventies. Well, I would I would make that even a narrower window uh, and say that since New York rebranded itself as friendly to tech and then leading in tech after two thousand and ten. Uh, yeah. The city began to attract more and more uh, uh, people who work in what they call tech and creative firms mm-hmm. and who want to start those kinds of, uh, of businesses. Uh, it's it's uh, not just jobs that hit the sweet spot in New York City as far as the Amazon deal was concerned, but it was... Uh, transportation and housing mm-hmm. to other parts of uh, what Miriam uh, referred to as the built environment that were not the sweet spot, but maybe the sour spot of the deal. The Amazon subsidies were proposed at the very same time that the subway system in New York is experiencing more than its usual share of breakdowns and other issues. Uh, the subway system has a real need for um, a, a cash infusion to pay for the modernization that a transportation system that is more than 100 year old years old really does need. Uh, the uh, the crisis of affordable housing, which New York and many other cities of the world experience, uh, is so acute 
that the impact of uh, a, a horde of potentially well-paid job holders descending on uh, one of the boroughs of the city and buying apartments was really more than a lot of people could uh, could bear to think about. So uh, this this was a an amazingly bad moment for a deal to be offered to a big company that would seem to impoverish not only other cities, but impoverish New Yorkers, crazily enough, in in the face of the jobs that were dangled in our eyes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What exactly were the qualms that people had about the Amazon relocation? Like, can you sort of flesh out what people were concerned about after this announcement was made? Yeah, well, I think that um, what Sharon was saying is is really important. So, you know, it's and and to your earlier question about why this this deal was different and went in, and went in a different direction, I think we are at a moment um, of a recognition of a crisis in transportation and in housing in inequality um, that's really concentrated in cities and in cities like New York. Um, and that has, and you know, New York has a long history um, of, since its inception, really, of this kind of dual. It's kind of been a dual city of, on the one hand, organizing um, and real grassroots and working class uh, consciousness and organizing that also made claim to what we now often refer to as a kind of right to the city, and that that neighborhoods and and working class people and working people more generally. Um, have a right to have a, a say in the in the future and um, path of development that their city is going to take, and on the other hand, this you know center of Wall Street and, and of global capitalism, and so it's it's there's been this long experience of kind of dealing with these kinds of contradictions. I think that this moment, for a lot of reasons, with what's going on nationally, you know, in terms of um, the Trump presidency the the role of of huge corporations like Amazon and taking over entire sectors and not having any kind of monopoly checks and balances to that um, and you know putting out of business all kinds of um, brick and mortar mom and pop stores and so forth um, at the lower end as a result of their taking over of so many markets um, their anti union explicit anti union policies mm-hmm. that's right which we could talk more about. Um, their impact in Seattle uh, and the precedent of their impact in Seattle, uh, which organizers in Seattle came to to coordinate with in- organizers in New York to discuss um, their resistance to any kind of regulation by the city council in Seattle to pay any kind of tax to compensate for the impact that they were having um, in terms of gentrification and displacement, which was massive in Seattle. Um, all of those things uh, kind of really fed into what was already this growing discontent, arguably, you know, am- kind of spearheaded uh, in the current era uh, during the Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, uh, uh, mobilizing, but also had been had been developing in all kinds of ways in stuff that I've looked at since you know, 9-11 and the redevelopment after 9-11, since, um, you know, post-Sandy organizing and so forth. All of these waves of kind of disasters that set in their wake increased gentrification and displacement. Um, 
to to really crystallize in a in a pretty clear headed opposition to this particular deal, which was on such a scale um, and was going to have such an uh, outsized impact on this community, which had already suffered so much Mm. that um, it it really uh, amplified these issues in a big way. So and I think one one final thing I would just say is, you know, there were symbolic elements to this. So Sharon was talking about the lack of investment in infrastructure and, and transportation and the and the the cost that this was going to uh, the, that was going to be borne by having 25,000 workers coming in to this area that was already heavily um, underserviced. And as a result of which Jeff Bezos was going to build his own personal helipad. Hmm which the city was going to subsidize. Yeah. Um, you know, just really again the scale of this deal and then and then the the the, the kind of role of, of CEOs like Bezos and their demands um, just pushed it to a point of really enabling people to counter what has become this common sense, this kind of hegemonic uh, idea about how economic development has to has to take place and who has to suffer from it. Miriam is exactly right. Uh, some of the reports that have come out uh, in in the past week or two since uh, the Valentine's Day massacre, or at least uh, the uh, the, with, the withdrawal on February fourteenth of Amazon from dealing with New York City, at least over the the recent offer. One of the turning points was, in fact, at one of the two uh, city council hearings uh, after the the deal had been struck, uh, where Amazon representatives said they would not be neutral if their employees in New York wanted to form a labor union. Mm. Uh, not be neutral means th- they would oppose their workers forming a union or jo- or joining a union and that was a that was one of the turning points in the in the process mm-hmm. where uh, many New Yorkers said this is this is this is totally irrational in a uh, global situation where uh, traditional labor unions continue to lose members and uh, uh, alternative uh, workers' organizations are being formed. A company that says they will not be receptive to labor organizing is a company that we don't want here. Uh, another policy, uh, or I should say another turning point, I think, on the side of Amazon was the company's realization that uh, the opposition to this deal in New York opened the door to criticism of many of the company's business practices, such as selling facial recognition software to the government, collaborating with the immigration authorities, uh, uh, contracts uh, with with the military, uh, maybe things that other tech companies also do, but Amazon really uh, exposed itself to criticism across the board, and they didn't want that. So, when you walk away from this whole story, what are the big take homes for each of you? Like, what are, what are the big lessons that you learned throughout this whole process? Well, number one, there has to be. A much more participation in economic development decisions. I think that uh, that's that's uh, already a um, a movement that's underway in New York City and in other localities. 
Yes, and I think this is in it for many people who've been involved in those kinds of efforts, a pretty um, exciting moment, really. I think you know one of the things that I um, I talked about in Branding New York way back in the day about and in thinking about reflecting on the impact of uh, this shift that New York was at the center of in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, with branding itself and trying to market itself um, for corporate relocations such as these, um, and becoming really kind of winning the winning the battle at that moment was, which you know, and which also I should say involved this kind of restructuring of the city and this uh, this what neoliberalized restructuring, which involved cuts, austerity cuts to the public sector and so forth, um, as well as uh, forms of regulating labor. People said if you can make it here you can make it anywhere it's up to you new york you know they would sing the new york new york song and new york came to symbolize this shift like if new york could restructure itself and rebrand itself um away from its very radical pro-labor past and become the center for corporate america in this way um and ronald reagan was was one of the people who spoke about this in the early 80s any city could do this and i think we're seeing a similar kind of symbolic role played by new york in countering the amazon hq2 and and cities are realizing like they don't have to take these terrible deals. They can resist. Communities have a pretty remarkable strength. And, you know, so the community organizations like, you know, Make the Road and uh, Good Jobs New York and others who came together to uh, as well as, you know, local council members and so forth um, in these districts to counter this actually won the day against the world's one of the world's largest corporations and the world's wealthiest man. And so there's a sense like, you know, actually this kind of organizing can be effective, particularly if it's done in concert with other cities. And so one of the things that I'm kind of excited by is that we're starting to see this idea that there needs to actually be solidarity, not only amongst workers, but amongst cities to resist this kind of, you know, beggaring, this kind of winner-take-all, zero-sum game, uh, struggle for economic development. And there needs to be a, a new conversation about how economic development needs to take place in cities and at you know, larger scales in this country, um, such that cities aren't positioned in this kind of a in this kind of a way and local communities and neighborhoods like Long Island City aren't positioned in this kind of desperate way. Um, so I feel like this is a kind of watershed moment in that regard. Miriam is right. I think that uh, the existing organizations uh, of mayors of different cities and activist organizations in different cities now have a, uh, a, a clear charter to follow to make sure that uh, the, the conditions with, uh, uh, within different cities offer a, a level playing field. What I hope will come about is this, this kind of alliance between cities that, that Miriam suggests and a standing together for the interests of all the citizens. Sharon Zukin is a professor of sociology at the City University of New York. Miriam Greenberg is a professor of sociology from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Annex, an academic sociology podcast. You can visit us on the web, www.sociocast.org slash annex. Follow us on Twitter at Socianics 
and visit us on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of Sharon Zukin and Miriam Greenberg, I'm Joseph Cumberland. Thanks for listening.